Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Without question, this is our interview of the day. Our Michael McKee with the great dissenter, Robert Kaplan. Michael? Thank you, Tom, and good morning to you, President Kaplan. Uh, Dallas Fed President Kaplan, one of two dissenters last week as the Fed adopted new forward guidance that incorporates average inflation targeting. Uh, you endorsed the old forward guidance and dissented on the new because, according to this statement, you prefer the committee retain greater policy flexibility beyond that point. What does that mean? Uh, what it means is... Uh, I, I believe strongly we should keep the current setting of the Fed funds rate, i.e. at zero, zero to 25 basis points, until we've weathered the pandemic and we're well on track to achieve full employment and price stability. Uh, that, by the way, is probably going to take at least two, two and a half, three years. The issue is beyond that point, once we've weathered the pandemic and we're on track to reach our goals, uh, I, I probably think it's appropriate to remain accommodative or maybe even highly accommodative. I'm not sure it's appropriate to decide right now that at that point we should leave rates at zero. I would rather leave those judgments to future committees uh, because I think the world is going to look very different post-pandemic than it does now. And I'd rather leave the judgment to future committees who can assess all the factors that are relevant in order to make that decision. Well, does that suggest you think that we could come out of this with faster growth than most people are anticipating? Uh, or I'll put it a different way. Uh, in my own forecast, uh, I think we're going to have solid growth in the third quarter, 30% annualized, a strong fourth quarter, above trend growth in 2021. And in my own forecast by the year 2023, and I know that's going out a long ways, uh, we could we could start to approach uh, an unemployment rate, certainly below 4%, say 35 to 4%. And so I believe that is possible. Obviously, we'll have to see, and a lot of that is going to depend on how will we manage this virus, fiscal policy, and a whole range of other decisions. Uh, but when we get to that point, uh, the, the question before the House is, uh, do you want to still be accommodative in light of our new framework in order to meet our inflation goal? Uh, in order to remain accommodative, does that mean we need to leave rates at zero? And, and I'm not sure, but that's the point. Uh, I think it's hard to know right now that far in advance, and I want to make those judgments at the time. Uh, is that enough to dissent on, uh, important enough? For me, it, for me it was. Uh, and the reason it is, is by making this commitment now, uh, first of all, there are a few reasons why I dissented, what I just went through. And then my own view is, uh, I'd rather use forward guidance where we got more positive benefit. Going into the meeting, the world already thought that rates were going to stay extremely low for the next two or three years. And so my concern was by making this commitment now, I wasn't sure how much additional benefit we're going to be. But on the negative side, it means if you're in the in the asset markets, if you're a saver, if you're a pension fund, if you're an insurance company, if you're a market participant, it basically gives you a signal that you're not going to be, you're going to need to take more risk. And my concern is about building up 
excess risk-taking, which can create fragilities and other excesses in the system, which are hard to see in real time and easier to see in hindsight, but could create uh, issues for us to meet our goals. And so that was the reason uh, I felt that the, the costs were not worth the benefits. Well, in his uh, news conference, Chairman Powell was at pains to say over and over again, the new guidance is strong and powerful, but there seems to be a lot of skepticism on Wall Street about that. Well, and, and I wouldn't overread the market reaction. It's been a few days, and I think these decisions usually are not, uh, are not uh, the reaction is not measured in three or four trading days. It, it's measured in the full, fullness of time. I think making a statement that people should expect even beyond the pandemic, that rates are going to stay at zero until we reach 2%, and are on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. I think as the months and the years go by, I think people will, will increasingly realize the power of that commitment. And, and, and so I think it's more significant than the markets may be initially realizing. Well, Washington is consumed now by a fight over the Supreme Court, which many analysts say pretty much ends chances of getting any kind of additional stimulus, at least before the election and possibly afterwards. What does that mean for the economy? Well, I think in my forecast for this year, um, I think some additional fiscal stimulus is uh, is part of that. And and one of the unusual features of this downturn has been uh, consumer spending has been very strong despite the elevated unemployment rate. That usually doesn't happen in a downturn, and it, it's happening because of strong fiscal support. And so uh, I think some extension of unemployment benefits is critical. And I also, second thing I'd mention is aid to state and local governments, I think is also important. They They all, they have big fiscal holes, they are they are needing to cut back because of that right now at a time where we're asking them to shoulder more responsibilities in fighting the pandemic and getting kids back to school and and a number of other responsibilities. And so I think fiscal uh, some fiscal support. I'm still hopeful for it, and I think it's important to this recovery. The uh, markets are at this point uh, not just discounting what you did last week, but concerns over the Supreme Court and a round of uh, pandemics. Uh, we've been asking for months about whether markets were too high and might fall dragging down the economy. What, what's your read on what's going now? Uh, well, I won't go too far in this job commenting on the markets other than to say uh, market cap to GDP is currently at a historic high. Uh, and hi at historic highs, there's some there's some understandable reasons for that. But normally, when you've had this kind of run, uh, some kind of correction could actually be healthy. And so, uh, the thing I watch when I see a market sell-off is our credit spreads widening, and I don't see them widening, which tells me right now this is more of a correction, maybe not a fundamental change. If I saw credit spreads widening along with the sell-off, that would tell me something different. But I'm not seeing that. Well, tight credit spreads and low interest rates suggest uh, the Fed policy is working at the moment. But if we do have uh, a need for additional stimulus and we don't get it, is there anything the Fed can do? Or are you sort of out of the game, done what you can do? I think monetary policy uh, has done a lot. We still have more uh, things we could do. Uh, and certainly with either asset purchases, I think we could do more to help small, mid-sized businesses. But I think the path of the pandemic, the incidence of the virus is still going to be the number one determinant 
of how fast we recover. And I think some amount of fiscal policy secondarily is important. But but I think monetary policy will do its part. It's not, though, the primary driver of this recovery right now. Uh, I, I think it's still how well we manage the virus. The uh, other issue uh, you just mentioned, the Main Street Lending Program, and you also talked about the municipal lending facility. Uh, Chairman Powell goes up to Capitol Hill, and they're going to be asking him the question, why aren't those working? Uh, there's been almost no take-up. One loan for the municipal facility and only two-tenths of one percent of the money for Main Street has been lent. What, what's wrong with the, uh, the Fed programs? Well, so uh, let me just segment these. I think it's a mistake to judge the effectiveness of most of these programs by the take up. The Main Street program, let me put off to the side. That That's a little bit different. But on a municipal finance program is a good example. We have backstopped issuance in the municipal finance market uh, with a capacity of $600 billion. As soon as we announced that program, uh, the municipal finance market rallied money flowed into those mar that market. That's true with the corporate bond market. It's true with other markets that we've done this for. So I, I actually think the, it, the measure of how effective those programs are is, is uh, are people able to issue in the private market. The fact there, haven't been, there hasn't been much take up, we're intended to be backstop pricing. So I think those programs have actually been very, very successful. The, the one program we've scrutinized more though is the Main Street program. On that program, take up is a good measure of how effective it's been. And as has been a lot of discussion, uh, there's still stringent credit uh, requirements for that program. Um, the banks have to agree to lend as part of that program. And, uh, and so we are looking at ways, and there's been discussion, can more be done to make that program more attractive? But again, the Fed is a lender, not a spender. And in order to ease the requirements of Main Street, you'd have to be willing to tolerate more credit losses. And that's not a Fed decision. That's a decision for Congress and the Treasury. Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Federal Reserve, thank you for joining us this morning on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. She has the toughest admit in academics, which is women's lacrosse at Stanford. Everybody knows that's the toughest thing to do uh, at the undergraduate level. And she went on off the lax field to clerk for one Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she joins us uh, now this morning. There's so much talked about, Lisa, we're, you know, the, 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 the notoriety of it and the RBG thing and all that. I want you to take us back to the grind of the day. As David Weston said, the grind of clerking at the court. What was the Ginsburg grind like? Well, um, first of all, uh, you know, it was my great good fortune to be able to clerk with her. Um, she had been a hero of mine for many years, having worked at the ACLU before going to Stanford. Um, you know, the, the walking into chambers, it was a serious place. It was a, everybody worked extremely hard. She, um, she lived for justice. She lived for the law. She, um, you know, she ran uh, terrific chambers. Um, right. Yeah, Lisa, the, the, the summary of this and Linda Greenhouse's effort in the New York Times, I thought really captured it, yeah. was a series of steps 
which culminated with the Virginia Military Institute uh, case, the VMI case. You right. were with her then. Was she aware when VMI occurred how momentous it would be? Oh, of course. I mean, the justice having really been responsible for establishing, you know, gender equality before the law as an advocate um, was acutely aware of the importance of that case. And in fact, two cases had come up that term. That was OT95. Both the Citadel and VMI came up at the same time. Um, you know, the VMI case was the better case for the court to take. Um, and it was a very important case mm -hmm. to her. Um, you know, she was honored to be able to draft the opinion, for to write the opinion, to author the opinion for the court. Um, and she cared tremendously about everybody's views on that court and holding the the big majority that she did in that case. That was a seven to one case, Justice uh, Thomas. Um, was recused because his son attended BMI, and the lone dissenter there was just was Justice Scalia, her, mm -hmm. her good friend. Um, but it was an important case. She thought a great deal about it, and she articulated, with reference to Justice O'Connor's case before that, she articulated the standard. Uh, that states had to meet when excluding women, right. um, the exceedingly persuasive justification standard, which is quite a high right. hurdle. What would you expect from Chief Justice Roberts as he tackles the future court, whatever the outcome may be? What can Chief Justice Roberts learn from your tenure there? The, 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 uh, the idea of Scalia and Ginsburg as close friends, can that goodwill still maintain on the Roberts court? Uh, I think so. I think that the court is an extremely cordial place. There's a number of things that they do to maintain that collegiality. They shake hands before each oral argument with each other. They are good natured and friendly. Um, that is not to say that they don't disagree um, quite vehemently with each other. Um, but I do think that with respect to the spirit on the court, it's a very cordial place. Um, I think, you know, it was it was sad to see that that middle, that moderate group uh, leave yeah. the court, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, Justice Souter, and the court become, um, you know, a bit more like the country, a bit more polarized. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, the justices care about the law, about the interpretation of the court. There's tremendous respect for each other on that court. Um, yeah. And I do think there are things to learn from her tremendous friendship with Justice Scalia. Lisa, for people who are not familiar with the Supreme Court, can you give us a sense of the proportion of cases that actually do come to a party line vote uh, or a very heavily uh, split vote? I mean, can you give us a sense of how, how much unanimity there is actually in the vast majority of cases? 
The majority of the cases are uh, decided, I believe, on unanimous grounds. I mean, it differs year to year, but it's really just the big, more political cases that tend to come down um, in a divided in a divided court. And you know, those cases are usually there's a lot of back and forth during the drafting of those opinions and the dissents. And those cases cases, excuse me, tend to come down at the very end of the court's term, the end of June. Um, but vast majority of the cases are unanimous decisions because the law is relatively clear. Lisa, great to catch up with you this morning and thank you for your time. Now it's been an upsetting weekend, so thank you very much for joining us. Lisa Beattie, Frelinghuysen there, the former clerk to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What we've tried to do this morning with work from uh, Lisa Frelinghuysen David, our David Weston is get you people with real, real tangible experience in this uproar. One of those is Russell Wheeler out of the University of Chicago. He's former deputy director of the Federal Judicial Center in, uh, at Brookings as well. And we are thrilled that Dr. Wheeler could join us this morning. Dr. Wheeler, I want to go back to 1956 and Dwight David Eisenhower, who needed the Catholic vote badly, Cardinal right. Spellman was giving it to him. You need to hire a Catholic. And they literally went out and got a guy they thought was somewhat conservative and Mr. Brennan. Well, that right. you know changed over the years. But we have many, many times back to the, the middle Supreme Court of the 1880s, we have many, many times gone through this, haven't we? Well, many, many times gone through what? If it's gone through election year vacancies, not really. There have been uh, eight by my count. Uh, one of them was the, the Brennan uh, vacancy created by Sherman Minton, whose health failed him. Eisenhower recessed appointed Justice Brennan. Then the Senate handily confirmed him in early 1957. Uh, that was not controversial. But, you know, we've come a long way since those days. Yeah. Those days back in the 1920s when justices were confirmed basically on the day they were nominated. It's a different world. It's a different world today. And what world would you expect to see here as a president moments ago says he's taking the line of conservative Republicans. Let's go. Let's get this done by the election. Can they accomplish that? Well, I, I, they have enough time. I mean, they, they'd have to rush it through. But the Democrats, so they have a few monkey wrenches. They can slow things down, but not much, really. So if they get their 50 votes plus Pence, they'll they'll be able to confirm a justice pretty much any time before the election or after the election, it all hinges, uh, I think, on on whether or not how many Republican senators decide that uh, mm -hmm. it's just too hypocritical to vote to confirm uh, a Trump appointee at this point. Russell, how many at this point, given what happened to Merrick Garland, for you know, back in 2016? There's been some discussion by some uh, Democrats that if Republicans push a nomination, nomination and confirmation through, they would possibly talk about packing the court if uh, Joe Biden does win the presidency. How realistic <clears throat> is that threat? Well, I think it's a lot more realistic than it was uh, a couple of days ago. I was quite skeptical of that, figuring that uh, you know you don't tamper with institutions that lightly. But I must admit, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to counteract a, uh, a, uh, a midnight appointment is what this, what this would be uh, late, in the, uh, late in the election season by a president who, you'd have to say, it looks like he's not going to get reelected. So it's, it's, um, 
it's not a pretty picture. And I think the <clears throat> Democrats will come back if they have the Senate and the House and the White House. They're going to seriously consider doing something to offset it. So what would that look like? I mean, this was tried by FDR back in the day. But what would a court packing kind of measure uh, proceed as, as, as likely? Well, uh, Roosevelt's was a little more uh, duplicitous. Roosevelt said, I, I want the authority to appoint a, another judge for any, any appellate judge over the age of 70. Um, this is quite direct. It just says the court has been at nine since 1868, 1867. Yeah. Increase the size to 11. <clears throat> well, that's a, that just gives a lot of work to the Supreme Court carpentry shop. But that's all they that's about. That's about all that's entailed. Dr. And of course, this is critical. This is just just critical, though. The act the, the Supreme Court Act of 1869 got us to nine members. Right. Is that sacrosanct? Is that just something that's untouchable? Well, you know, the reason it's nine is because at that point there were nine circuits and the justice's job back then was largely to serve as trial judge on what used to be called the circuit courts, trial courts, nine circuits, nine justices. That's the reason it went up and down when the court locked it in at nine. There's nothing magic about that number. It's come to, okay. be, regarded, it's come to be regarded that way. And most Supreme, most state Supreme Courts are nine or less. Most world uh, common law courts are, are nine or less. But you know, an 11 court member court can function, obviously. So this is one final question, and this is just so important. You're not uncomfortable forgetting about conservative liberal with the idea of an 11 member court. I am uncomfortable with it, but I think there's a lot of justification if the Republicans ran through this late in a in an election by a president who's clearly has no he has no popular mandate whatsoever to impose a very conservative federal judiciary on the country. Uh, oh. he, he ran on that and he lost the popular vote massively. So I think the court's legitimacy is already going to be in tatters if he gets a, another appointment. And it, it, it's, it's just one more ratcheting down of the, of the institution. Uh, this has been hugely beneficial. Russell Wheeler, thank you so much. Dr. Wheeler, of course, with Brookings, a former uh, deputy director of the Federal Judicial Center. Right now, a four-hour conversation with Timothy O'Brien. You can do that with his knowledge of our economic politics. We're thrilled that he could join us today from Bloomberg Opinion. Tim O'Brien, you and your team have to write next. I want you to write about the Senate decisions that need to be made. I want you to do that right now. Collins has spoken. Murkowski has spoken of Alaska, Collins of Maine. There's many others. Let's start with uh, the former presidential candidate, Romney of Utah. Is it just a given that he won't support the president on this? Um, I don't know that it's a given, Tom. I think it's a really hard call. <clears throat> I, I, I would think that Romney would have the same perspective on this as Murkowski and Collins, but I, I don't know. It's just, um, and, and I imagine there's some horse trading going on as well. We spoke to Russell Wheeler of Brookings today, and, and it, it, he mentioned eight times this has occurred since 1880, et cetera. How did the Democrats respond besides raise a lot of outrage and raise a lot of money? What is their plan? Well, I, I mean, they're powerless right now until the election uh, happens because the Republicans control the Senate and, 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 and the president's going to name yeah. somebody by the end of the week. And then there's going to be 39 days to election day. Um, I think all Democrats can do at this point is rely between now and election day on, on the integrity and courage of 
Republicans who want the process to remain above board. Um, after Election Day, the real wild card will then be if the Senate changes hands. And if it does, uh, um, you know, then there's, I think, going to be some real, a, a real mud wrestling around this. If McConnell goes ahead and Trump goes ahead and they push this through during a lame duck period before next January, and um, uh, uh, that's how it plays out, then I think the issue for Democrats will be, do they seek retribution come January? Do they decide yeah. to expand the size of the court and make D.C. and Puerto Rico states? And that's, that's going to be level three of all this. There's going to be a whole cascading series mm. of events around this. Tim, what's the downside to President Trump for trying to push this through? Um, you know, I think uh, I think for, from where he sits, nothing, because his his strategic view. Well, he doesn't have a strategic view. His, he all he has been about is courting uh, uh, his base, and mm-hmm. and I think putting up a a, a a conservative with good bona fides is going to appeal to his base. But mm-hmm. I think this could be really problematic for uh, Republican senators in swing states. Um, who are going to really need to get women out and uh, and others on their side to stay alive. Mm. And this could be a very polarizing nomination. Tim, in the time we've got left with you, I've got to switch gears here. And I want to go back to your perspective on Bob Woodward and the tapes of the president. I had a hockey injury, actually, in the summer of 1973. Tim, this is you were like in grade school, whatever. And I was laying flat on my back in my parents' family room watching the Watergate hearings addictively. And there it was, John Dean in June, and then Butterfield, I think a month later, that there were tapes. How did Lindsey Graham get the president to do tapes with Mr. Woodward of the Post? I don't think Lindsey Graham got the president to do anything. No, no one really makes Donald Trump do something he doesn't want to do. And putting uh, a prominent journalist in front of Donald Trump for an interview is catnip to him. And he's an attention addict. He's a media addict. And, and he can't help himself. He, the last thing he wants is to not be in the spotlight. He'll take bad coverage and he'll take good coverage, but he doesn't want to be ignored. And and you see glints of this throughout Woodward's account. You know, Melania Trump walks into the Oval Office and Trump says, look, honey, I'm talking to Bob Woodward. Uh, while what he's saying on tape is utterly uh, self, you know, it's self-immolation, but he does it anyway because he can't help himself. How will he not help himself in this Supreme Court dash? Uh, I think I think if he starts campaigning in swing states, uh, and this nomination is what's front of mind for him as a political uh, tool, mm-hmm. uh, when what's on voters' minds for the most part is going to be health care and the coronavirus and the economy, uh, he'll be off message, and he, he has no wiggle room to be off message. Too short a visit. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. Timothy O'Brien, thank Bloomberg you. Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.